0: Yeah. Anyone notice that dogs and cats think differently? I mean, if you treat a dog well, this is what it thinks. It says, you feed me. You love me. You must be God. If you treat a cat well, it thinks, you feed me. You love me. I must be God. My concern this morning is I don't want people to think like a cat when it comes to God. I was explaining mercy and grace with my nine-year-old son. And I was, well, I was talking, trying to get him to understand it in the context of deserved and undeserved. And so it's a pretty simple thing, but it took a little while for us to get it. I would quiz him every night to see if he got it, right? What is mercy and what is grace? And so I explained it to him like this. Mercy is about not getting what you deserve. Or to be more clear, mercy is about not getting the punishment that you deserve. That's mercy. Grace is also similar but different. Grace is about getting what you don't deserve. It's about getting the good things from God that you didn't earn. So mercy is about not getting deserved punishment. You deserved it, but you don't get it. And grace is getting a gift that you don't deserve. And the best verse of Scripture I can use to uh, illustrate it is Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. What do our sins deserve? Well, death. Death and separation from God. In fact, that's what... God said to Adam and Eve in the garden that if you eat, if you, if you, they had only one law, they had only one thing to, that they could possibly disobey, and they disobeyed it. He said, if you do this, the result will be death. Now, they didn't die immediately physically, but death was coming. And on top of that, eternal death, separation from God. But what does God offer us instead as a gift? He offers us eternal life with Him. So, He offers us mercy. To repeal the sentence of death and separation. And he offers us grace to give him give us himself and to give us eternal life with him forever. So, in light of these simple truths, in light of God's mercy and in light of his grace, what how how should this affect our thinking about God or about ourselves or about others? And I just want to lead right into our passage. These are the, there's three key verses that I want to share for these next four weeks. Uh, I won't be doing all the sharing. I'll, uh, Daisy's going to speak next week. And at the end of the series, Larry Moore is going to come from Regina to, to cap off the series in the fourth week. But here's the verses that I really want to share with you, especially these, verse three, these verses out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you've got a Bible there, you can turn to 2 Corinthians 5 and we'll be, we'll be camped here for a little bit. Here we go. So in light of these things, in light of God's mercy and his grace, in light of that we deserve death and separation for our sin, that we're we're a treacherous humanity who God gave us life and then we sort of rejected him. In light of that, and in light of the fact that he offers us eternal life, what should we do? Here we go. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Now I'm going to just jump down to verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. It's interesting because it talks about two things that are motivating us. One is the fear of the Lord, and the other one is Christ's love. Can you be motivated by fear and love at the same time? And can you be motivated by fear and love in the same relationship with someone else? I, you know, you might think that that's a contradiction, but uh, it happens all the time in parenting, right? If you hear, if you've got more than one kid, maybe an older child might say to a younger child, you should listen to dad or there'll be consequences. That's the fear of the dad. Or it could be mom, right? Or they might also say it this way. They "Say they You should listen to dad because dad's the one who decides what dessert we get at supper time or maybe mom, right? So there's consequences if you disobey or if you don't listen and then there's benefits because your mom and your dad want good things in your life. They wanna pour good things in your life. They want you to have access to all sorts of good things. And so if you know this, if you become aware of this and you're an older sibling, you might tell a younger sibling, hey, listen, do what dad or mom wants because That's the best way we could possibly live. So I want to walk through these verses 14, 15, and 16. We're calling this series four. And I think in a few seconds you'll see where those fours are, are coming from. But these three verses. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. We're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. So one died for all of humanity out of love for mankind. Here's the first four. God is for us. God is for us. God is for us. God is for humanity. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. I don't think it was saying God loved the spinning sphere in space, that, that that's, I mean, I think God created that good, so he does love that as well, but he loves the people of the world. The Bible, I just want to throw this out, if you're reading the Bible and you read the world, you pretty much have to read the context around it to understand, because there's a couple ways it's used in the Bible. One way is used is just like John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So God loves the people of the world. You can read it into the context and understand this is about the people. And other passages of Scripture will say things like, love not the world, don't love the world. It's not saying don't love the people of the world, but it's more like the world system. It's sort of like a mindset. In particular, it's a mindset that is antagonistic towards God. So it's sort of like a world system or a worldly way of thinking. In other passages, it'll say, you are not of the world right? You're not of that mindset or that worldly, that's not what God's made you for. And uh, even the world is not our home. Again, talking about the planet. So, read the context. Whenever you see the world in the scripture, then you'll find out whether it's talking about the people or about some thinking or even the physical location, because it's used different ways. But in this context, when we're talking about is, is, he's died for the whole world. He's died for all the people of the world he is for us. God is for us. This is a great encouragement to us. In fact, God being for you is, is an encouragement when you suffer. You find this in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, this was written to a people who had people against us. It wasn't saying that nobody's against them. It was saying, but if you have God on your side... Well, think of all the people that are antagonistic or against you or causing you to suffer or persecuting you. Suddenly that shrinks. And here's a truth that's elevated above, that God is for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? It's a, it's a contrast in terms. It's a great encouragement. In fact, um, God is, in Romans 8, it also says God is working all things together for our good. So even when you're going through things that are negative and bad, maybe you're there right now. You're experiencing some suffering in your life, some difficulty, some antagonism from somebody else, and maybe in particular because you're a follower of Jesus. He's working that for your good. He's working that out for your good. You can know that if you love him, if you're his follower, you can know that he's working things together for your good and that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. All these are in the great chapter eight of Romans. So God is for us. That's the first reality. We're convinced that one died for all. We're convinced that Jesus came as a substitution for us. We, we couldn't live the life we, we were supposed to live. So he lived it, perfect sinless life. None of us are sinless. And then he died the death that we really deserve to die in our place so that we could have this incredible exchange in our lives. He would take upon himself. The guilt and the shame of our sin, and we would receive in response uh, his righteousness. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that we even become the righteousness of God. That when you stand in front of God someday, remember the fear of the Lord, the fear of standing before the judgment of seat of Christ. That that fear can be uh, dealt with, and we can boldly approach the throne of grace, because grace we received what we didn't deserve. We've received his his forgiveness. We've received his righteousness. And we don't stand there clothed in our sin. We stand there clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. It's just like we never sinned. It's just like we've always obeyed. It's an incredible gift. So that's the first reality. God is for us. God is for us. We could camp here the whole rest of the sermon just to soak in it. In fact, It's worth soaking in. I would recommend Romans chapter 8, if you want to just soak in the fact that God is for you and that nothing can separate you from his love. I'd recommend Romans 8, if you need that as a prescription today, just to get this God is for me deeply embedded in your heart. Because it's from that being deeply embedded in your heart that you move on to the next thing, which is verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So here's the, here's the fallen condition of people. They live for themselves. I was trying to explain this uh, again to my nine-year-old son. I'm doing most, I'm explaining, I'm, I think I do more theology teaching at bedtime with Jacob than I do anywhere else. Uh, and he asks good questions. And uh, the other day I said, like, I said, it's not, we sin, we do selfish things, but also we're born into sin. There's a, there's a power of sin in our lives that we're born with. We have a sinful nature that we inherited. That original disobedience of Adam and Eve in the garden has, been, has cascaded down through the generations, and we, we are born with the power of sin already at work in us. And God comes to Jesus' death on the cross is not only just to, uh, so that our sins can be forgiven, but so that the power over our lives of sin can be broken that sin is no longer our master but that Jesus can be our master that we we can be be set free and we can be start a road of transformation where we become more and more like Jesus all the time so sin doesn't have to have that dominance over us it doesn't have to be that thing and so he had a really great uh, pushback on that he said babies aren't sinful now it's really funny because at this point in our lives we have two little babies in our house twin babies And uh, those twin babies, if you put them close enough together and put a spoon in between them. Now, I say a spoon because we have uh, two high chairs and we put them in the high chairs. And uh, if they're sort of impatient, waiting to eat or something like that, often just give them a little plastic or a rubber baby spoon. And they'll play with that, like a drum or just fiddle with it or, you know, they just think it's fascinating. But if they're both in high chairs and I only give one of them a spoon the envy is off the charts. If you put them on the floor and you put a spoon in between them, they would both grab for it at the same time. I mean, they would rip each other to shreds to get the spoon, if they could. So that's the illustration I told Jacob. I said, no, we're sinful from the beginning. We're looking out for number one. We want to do it our way. We want our best life now. So this is, he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. That's our fallen condition, our natural tendency, our default mode. We live for ourselves. And he comes to break that power over our lives and to show us a brand new way to live, to give us a whole new start where we don't live for ourselves, but we live for him who died for them and was raised again. We live for the one who died for us. So, we no longer live for self, but we live for him. It's the second four. I we said we're, God is for us, but we are called, and because of what Jesus has done, it's possible for us to live for God. It's possible for us to live for God. So, God for us, us for God, and you know what? Sometimes we just sort of end the, the the chapter here. We just sort of end our thinking about this here. We think, wow, like, you know, I already said, you know, don't think like a cat. A cat thinks, oh, you're for me. That means I'm pretty awesome. I must be super special, right? And that's where it ends. There's no reciprocating. Well, step two is to understand you are for me. I am for you. But step three is really vitally important. It's what we're going to talk about these next four weeks. And that's in verse 16. It's a little more convoluted, but it's really clear as you go farther. It says, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. So you've had, a, you've had a change in your thinking about God, God's mercy and his grace in your life. He's for me. And that, means, and that changes your thinking. And then I'm for him. I'm meant to live my life. He, he gave his life as a sacrifice for me. I'm supposed to live in response to that, with, to match that. And I'm, supposed to, I'm I'm supposed to live my life responding to him. But then here's the next step. It's, we do, it changes how we regard other people. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. What does that mean? Um, I think what's normal in our culture is that you look at people and you sort of size them up and you go, you know what they're doing? It's bad. Or you know what they're doing? It's good. And this is even how we talk to each, people, to each other in culture. We say, yeah, you're a good person, right? You're, you know, you're a good person. Or you might say, you know, that person, not a good person, right? So we have these sort of categories uh, that we decide about people being good and bad. And the Bible actually uh, gives us a little bit different picture on ourselves, more accurate picture of who we are. And this, now, I just want to say this, the writer of, the, of this whole passage is Paul, He had a total change in his thinking. So he was a very religious guy, very zealous religious guy. And when the followers of Jesus came along, he said, these guys are bad. These guys are bad. They aren't, you know, like following the true Jewish religion. And so I'm going to, if I really am going to do what's right, I need to, you know, deal with these people, imprison them, kill them, eradicate them, make sure they have no influence. And so he goes out to do that. But along the way, he comes to faith in Christ. Now, he thought of Jesus from a human perspective as well, that Jesus uh, was, you know, a liar. He didn't rise from the dead. But then he met the living Christ. And so now he goes from viewing Jesus as just a man and his death as a punishment for Jesus' heresy. Now he sees him as the son of God. And he sees them as a substitute for human sin. And he comes to understand that everyone, whether you would label them as good or bad or whatever, everyone can be forgiven from sin. And everyone can be transformed through trusting in Jesus. So he doesn't view people in the same worldly way that he used to view them anymore. He views them very differently. And then now there's a whole new urgency. Because... The real big thing is whether that person is still in their sin, unforgiven and living for themselves, or whether that person has been forgiven of their sins and now is walking with God and being transformed bit by bit to become more like Jesus. And Paul even says this. He says this in Romans 1. He says, I'm obligated. I'm obligated to reach those people that haven't heard this message. He even goes on to say, I'm eager to do it. If there's if I have received this message and been transformed, and I know of people who haven't received this message and been transformed, then I have an obligation. It's he's using the language of being in debt, really. It's like I owe a debt to people that don't know. And so he zealously went out to, to share. He had a, he had a zeal before to eradicate Christianity, and now he has a zeal to spread the message of Jesus wherever he goes. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We once regarded Christ in this way, but we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God calls us to live. So God is for us. We are for God. And now because of that, God has made us a people for others. God has made us a people to reach the world. So he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. Here's the thing. So you say, well, I'm not a minister. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a minister. You've been given a ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. God is ascending God, right? God sent Jesus. And Jesus, John 20, 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you are sent. This morning we had Brittany up here, and we say, wow, it's obvious that Brittany's been sent. But that's not an exclusive thing to to a handful of Christians. That's all of us. We've all been sent. We've all been given the ministry of reconciliation. We've all been given the message of reconciliation. And I was thinking about that. I thought, like, you know, when Jesus said, you know, to go and make disciples of all the nations. I thought, wow, you know that. I think that still intimidates us in the Western Church quite a bit. So I was reading a great book by uh, J.D. Greer, uh, "Gaining by Losing." Good book, anyhow. And I found this little passage where he says, "Discipleship is easy." And I thought, oh, it's not easy. But then I got sort of encouraged reading it. So I'll read it to you. Okay. The good news is making disciples is fairly easy. Again, withhold your disbelief. Okay. You simply bring people along in your spiritual journey. Making disciples is more about intentionality than technique. Discipleship means teaching others to read the Bible the way you read it, to pray the way you pray, and tell people about, the, about Jesus the way you do. If you have Christian habits in your life worth imitating, you can be a disciple-maker. It doesn't require years of training. You just teach others to follow Christ as you follow him. I asked, this is his story, I asked one of the most effective disciples I know to share with me his discipleship system. I was expecting a fancy curriculum with a silver bullet. Instead, he sent me a scanned list of verse references he had typed out by hand on a word processor from the 1980s. He explained... he gives the list to the person he's trying to bring to faith and he asks them to read the verses and then write out on a sheet of paper what he thinks what they think each verse means and what god might be saying to them through it then he meets with them the next week to discuss their answers after that he said he asks them if they want to read a book of the bible together and they do the same thing that was it no secret sauce no electrifying jolt of discipleship genius Yet, just about every time we do a baptism, that discipler has somebody represented in the lineup, either from him directly, or through someone he's led to Christ, who's now bringing someone else to Christ. I think he is at least a spiritual great, great, great grandfather. And then he says this: effective discipleship is not about a curriculum; it's about one person learning from another person what it looks like to follow Jesus. Our college pastor says about 75% of discipleship is informal. If you know how to love and walk with Jesus, you can disciple someone else. Even if your life is far from perfect, any sincere believer can teach another how to seek God, how to repent, how to read the Bible, how to pray, and how to share with others. It just hit me when I read that. I just thought, it really just comes down to this. Like, walk with God. Have a relationship with God. And then invite other people into it. Share what you're doing. Share what you're learning. And I realized that that is a huge struggle in our culture. I was visiting with Tom and Sherry Hansen, and I think you'll hear more in this series. I think they're going to share a testimony next week. Um but I was just visiting in their home, having a great visit. And Sherry told me about a dynamic in her life. Um, They just love their neighbors. I mean, they have such cool neighbors. They love their neighbors. And, And she was just sharing how, at a certain point, she made a decision. And she'd done what a lot of us have done. And that is, in order not to be weird or to appear religious, she sort of pulled back on all the things she would normally say. She sort of hid that aspect of her life. So instead of talking about God or prayer or the Bible or things like that, which were a big part of her life, she would edit that out of her conversations with people who weren't believers. And then at a certain point, she just felt a sense to unedit it and just bring that back into her everyday conversations with people. And when she was sharing that with me, it began to just trigger for me moments in my life. I'll share a couple of them with you. I was, um, this is when I was in the mid-90s, uh, living in Nippon, and I went for a walk. I, I left the church where I worked, and I just went out for a walk in a, in a, in a little schoolyard nearby, and I was just going for a walk, and along came a kid I'd met once before, and his name was Mike, Mike on his bike, and he was with a friend, and they just pulled up right in front of me, and he said, hey, what are you doing? And what was I doing? I was praying. I was going for a prayer walk hey, what are you doing? And I'm, I i remember it. I remember it was like I had this moment in me where I was like, I don't want to be weird or I don't want to appear religious. Uh, and, and maybe that's off-putting. So in I had a natural tendency to say something like, oh, I'm just going for a walk. But I felt in that moment, just sort of like a twig inside of me to not do that. And I followed that. And I was like, I'm praying. And as soon as I said it, I felt like this thrill in me, like sort of like, whoa, I'm in the game here. This is an adventure. I I I'm telling these guys, these boys who might think I'm a total weirdo, that I'm praying. I just remember feeling it was thrilling, the experience, like sort of like a jolt of lightning, and it was sort of scary at the same time. And I was like, oh, it's happening. <laughs> Seems so trivial. Seems so trivial. But, you know, because I started my relationship with Mike, with him knowing I had a relationship with God, and then I prayed, and I I explained to him that day, I said, yeah, I talked to God about my life, and I asked him to help me with my life. That was my explanation for what prayer was. Because I started that way, it was easier as things went on, you know, to invite him to youth group, to to hang out with him. Uh, Mike was the first skater that I knew. Like, sort of skating had died out in the 80s and then didn't come back to Nipah until Mike. And, when, and so he was the first skater in town, and so then I was the second. And that was really strange, because I never had the aptitude for it. And uh, so I hurt myself a lot on the skateboard that Mike convinced me to buy. <laughs> but I had lots of good times with him. And uh, about that same time, I, I made the shift from skiing to snowboarding. So I was sort of like embracing several things at the same time that caused me pain. And, um, but a lot of it was, I was hanging out with Mike. I was having good, you know, I'd, I'd talked to Mike about his life. I'd talk openly about my life because the cat was out of the bag. He knew from the get-go that I had a relationship with God. And I, I remember we, I remember one time I, I was driving him home and I got home and I just was asking about some tough re- realities in his life and, and I'd been praying for Mike but when he told me what was going on in his life, it was like a I felt another sort of thrill moment happening in me where I was like, Mike, could I pray with you about these things? And he said, yes. And again, it was like, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. It's happening. I mean, like, it's not just me and Mike. God is part of this This thing that's going on. And uh, anyhow, I had a good relationship with Mike. Uh but I got to the point where I was like, I need to go further with this, and so I uh, I made a special appointment with him. Didn't just meet for coffee at the usual. We went to the nicest restaurant in town, the Venice House. And uh, went it was just funny, the one in this one is like, you, it's actually in a basement, which I, I never could figure out how that made it classy. Anyhow, um, <laughs> but we went into the basement of the Venice House and got a table, and uh, we had food together, and then I just walk through a little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. God loves you. He has a plan for your life. And sin separates you from God's love and his plan. And Jesus, and God had mercy on you, so he sent Jesus and he died so that that sin barrier could be removed. And you just got to trust in what Jesus has done for you and, uh, and surrender your life to him And then you'll experience God's love, and you'll experience his plan for your life. I just walked him through that. I just said, Mike, you're my friend, and I I wouldn't want the thing that I think could make the biggest difference in your life, I wouldn't want to withhold that from you as my friend. And I shared it with him. And he didn't become a Christian right then, and I don't even know if he ever did become a Christian. But it was sort of like, it's because I wasn't holding back parts of my life. I was just being real about every aspect of my life, and God is a part of my life. Here's another snapshot. Wow, that's two thumbs down. Um, Sorry, I'll try to finish up for you. Um, (laughs) Wow. Last 20 years, I've pretty much had a rental house for 20 years. I sold it last spring. I had one in Nippon, I had one in Moose Jaw. I'm always at a rental house. I don't know why. It just was, again, I like, I like pain. Um, anyhow, <laughs> I had a renter, really nice guy uh, in the basement of the rental house, and his, um, he was Muslim, and this was just a, in, a, in the last number of years. And um, so, again, I'm getting to know this guy, and the thing that strikes me about him is that, of course, he has all sorts of phrases that reference Allah, right? You know, in, you know, if it's Allah's will, uh, praise Allah, you know, gratitude towards Allah, just different things. But they're just part of, they're just peppered throughout his conversation all the time. And of course, I'm used to trying to live in a sort of semi-secular culture and, you know, again, editing those things out of my, my sentences and the way I, you know, so I don't go around saying, praise Jesus all the time or, you know, God bless you all the time. I don't, that's not how I roll. So I'm engaging with him and he's just being over the top, just normal about this, and I'm struck, you know, it's sort of an interesting dynamic. And uh, very early in our our getting to know each other, uh, he asked me where, you know, about where I'd been in the world, because he'd come from another country, and I said, um, well, i travelled to Africa once, I went to Burkina Faso, and he just said, why did you go there? And I told him, uh, because I sort of stalled in the moment, because The true answer, maybe you even know the true answer. I didn't give him that. I gave him something. I was like, well, you know, it was sort of about aid and development and sort of seeing what could be done in another context. So I'm totally like sort of, which is sort of true, but it's not the most straightforward answer. I went home, and I was like thinking it through, and I went, the most straightforward answer is this. I was praying and felt God direct me to go to Africa before I turned 40. Some of you know that story. Why did I edit that out? Even more so, because I'm talking to a person who is a person of faith, right? They have they believe in the supernatural. They believe in a God. Why did I not just say, "Because God told me to go to Africa?" And I realized, whoa, I think I've pulled right way back again. I think I'm starting to edit it out again instead of including it in. And this would have been a great opportunity. To sh- for them from the very beginning of this relationship to know that I have a relationship with God that's real and that directs my life. And, and so it was, it was shocking for me. So then I had to sort of come back to that relationship and think about, okay, I, I've, I've let this stuff get weeded out again and I want to bring it back in. So, I mean, we had great re- re- conversations after that. I was, I was, I would, I was trying to learn a new rhythm. Whenever I'd leave him, I would tell, he'd say something uh, that I wasn't always sure what he was saying about Allah and what it all meant. But I would say, God bless you, when I left him every time. And um, when he had struggle, um, trouble finding work, I, I would tell him, I'm praying for you to get a job. And then I remember the one day when he was, he was really discouraged about that, where I said, um, I have prayed for you to get a job. I said, can I pray with you? And he said, yes. And so I remember just sitting out in front of the house uh, on the front and just praying with him and sort of going, why do I leave this stuff out? I I think sometimes we just, we don't want to be weird. We don't want to be that crazy Christian or we think we're going to turn people off. But it's like we're holding back who we really are. And how we really live. And I think what God's doing in our lives, I, I think well, what I experience is it's sort of like there's these seasons where I ebb and I flow, but I, the most exciting seasons of my life it was where my faith is on the front and not hidden in the back room. And I think that's what God's calling us into more and more. I think there's lots of indicators in our culture that people are spiritually hungry and spiritually empty. And they may not always, you know, turn to, well, I think I should go to church because of that. Some will. I think there's lots that won't. And so it's not going to just be that people can come and see and, you know, I think invite people to church. I think there are lots who will come. But there will be a number of people who we have to go to. We need to be those sent people that God says we are. And I think the the key in that is going to be prayer. The key in that is going to be prayer. I know for me, when I pray for people in my spheres of influence, when I pray, I become positioned. Like when I pray for my neighbors um, and I see them out and about, because, you know, for the whole winter months, you hardly ever see them. I don't know if your neighborhood's like that. And then you get reacquainted in the spring, (laughs) but I can hardly wait for spring when I'm praying because I can hardly wait for the people sightings. Oh, they're outside now, and I'll rush out of my house. Yeah, maybe I'm a little weird. I, I, but I'll rush out of my house. You know, I'll rush to the door, but then I'll act cool when I walk out, right? But I'm breathing heavy, you know, because it took me, you know, I, I tripped over my shoes in the entryway. But they didn't see all that. I just got outside. I'm like, hey, how's it going? Hey, you know. Because I've I've got this treasure. I've got this. Like the mercy and grace of God is something that they could experience. And if they experienced it, it wouldn't just be like a ten percent boost in their standard of living or something like that. It would be a complete and total transformation. Wouldn't be just some nice add-on like fries on the side. This would be. This is the. This is the meal that can satisfy. It wouldn't be like, oh, that was a nice drink, and now I need something else. No, this is the living water that will quench their thirst. But I know that I'm not ready when I don't pray. I mean, it's not like you can't, you know, God can use you in all sorts of different ways, but I know my readiness goes up as I pray. The more I, 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 I talk to God about them, the more likely I am to talk to them about God. And my eagerness to be, to sacrifice my life for them, like Jesus sacrificed his life for me, goes up as I pray. The heart of the Father becomes more my heart when I pray. You know, we're hearing stories out of uh, different places in the world where they're saying, you know, if we're going to make. If we're gonna make the impact, if we're gonna bring the goodness of the good news of the gospel to this area of the world, we have to pray. I heard about the a ten year fast that was declared Yeah over in Asia. And out of that ten year fast, like they People were, you know, global workers were saying, we're just not seeing any impact. We're not seeing any, we're, and we're, we're trying, and we're trying, and we're trying, and then they said, we need to pray, and they began a 10-year fast. And that when they began it, even at the beginning, it seems like God just responded to that, and suddenly they saw a few come to Christ, and they hadn't seen that for years. Right now as a church, there's a number of us who are doing a fast from now until uh, May 28th, Pentecost Sunday. Just, there's somebody on every day who's fasting From food that day so they can pray. You can join. If you want to join, just you can email uh, our office. You could be part of that. But I'll tell you a few things it'll do for you. One, it'll change your posture. It'll change your heart. Especially if you're praying, not like, God, get those people, those wicked evildoers. No, pray blessing on your neighbors. Pray blessing on your city. But have a prayer list of people. Who are the people that God is calling you to pray for? Just pray. Have a prayer list of people and pray. I mean, I'll end with this. Jesus tells a story. or It's not a story. It's an actual Jesus event. He's with his disciples. They go to this uh, banquet, and they have uh, seating. You can seat up at the high table, seat at the low table. You can seat wherever. And he basically says, go seat at the low table. You know, don't go proudly up to the top, saying, I'm all that. Go to the bottom. And if people don't think that you are significant, they'll come grab you and pull you up to a higher table. But don't be arrogant. Be humble. He tells them this. And then he tells him another thing. He says, this is this is how you are when you go to a party. But he says, now I want to tell you how to throw a party. He says this. He says, when you throw a party, don't throw a party for the people who you're going to get the benefit out of it because you threw a party for them and they're going to pay you back. Because instead, he says, find people who can't pay you back and throw a party for them. He says, you know the payback you're going to get? You'll get it from God. You'll be paid back. There's no payback. It's just that this payback requires faith. The first one is just networking. This other one is an act of faith. It's an act of the kingdom. It's an act of uh, being a sent person. I was reading that story once, and I thought, wow, you know, I, you know, there's lots of people who have a lot more money than me. I don't know if I can throw a party that would really wow, you know, s- certain people of a certain stratosphere. And then I just realized, what am I talking about? I have the gospel. I am eternally rich and can be, never be made poor. I have something to offer anyone of any strata anywhere that they need. I have something that if they were to receive it, they could never repay me for because it is so valuable. So if your life was a party, who is God calling you to throw it for? Would you stand with me? Yeah, I'm just going to ask you a question. When I was speaking today, maybe I'm going to talk about Mike on the bike or my renter in the basement or different people. How many of you had people come to your mind through this message? You say, I have people come to my mind. Just put it, hold those hands up high. Just hold them up. Let's just get a look. Someone came to your mind. Awesome. Awesome. Let's pray for them right now. Okay. I'm not just going to be the only one praying. I'll pray. You pray too. Pray for them right now. Lord, you see the people that, that you've placed on our hearts. You want to make yourself visible to them. And your plan was to send us so that we could sort of fill in the lines. We could, we could paint the picture. We could, not just through our words, but how we live and how we give ourselves and how we live sacrificially, how you made us a people for others. You want people to see who you are. You want them to understand your grace and your mercy extended to them. And that God is a God who so loves the people of the world. And he's not willing that any should perish, but he wants all to come to repentance, all of them to come to experience what you have planned for them, your goodness, your love. Lord, we, uh, we hold in our, in our minds and in our hands right now just those people that you placed on our hearts. And we ask for that, those ones we're thinking of right now. Would you draw them to you? Would you draw them to you? Would you give us opportunities with them? God, would you give us um, strategies on how uh, to um, minister to them, to care for them, to spend time with them, to meet their needs, and to share who you are with them, Lord, I pray for ideas just to come to our minds, even right now. Would you guide and direct us, Lord? I thank you that you, 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 you did a crazy thing. You did things that just seems unbelievable. You left twelve disciples and some others, and you said that you you're going to pray for them. That you pray for them and the ones that they'd reach, that they'd all experience the love of God and they'd all come to complete unity. And you, you pray this incredible prayer. And God, amazing that you left and you trusted this plan, that that would be the way that the world would be reached. And Lord, we, we need to embrace it today, Lord. We just need to embrace it today. Lord, help us to do that. Yeah. So Lord, help us to live sent. We ask that in your name. I've got one more thing I just want to share with you. It's just a quick affirmation. I don't know if we have a slide for that. Just Okay, you might not be able to read that, but I'll, I'll read it for you here. I'll read it. I'm going to read it, and I just ask you to repeat it. If, if, it, if it's true for you, then repeat it. My God is a sending God. Just as he sent Jesus to lay down his life out of love for me, Jesus is sending me to lay down my life out of love for the world. I am a minister of reconciliation. I have the message of reconciliation. I am an ambassador for God to others wherever I go. God is for us. We are for God, therefore we are for the world. Amen.